We are in the middle of a series on the Beatitudes. That's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew 5. And actually, we're not in the middle of it anymore. We are kind of, we're getting now toward the downhill side. So um, let's read again the Beatitudes. I know we've been doing that in some form or other every week, but the day is quickly approaching when this study will be over, and we won't be doing that anymore. So let's take advantage of considering these words straight from the lips of Christ while we can. In the interest of getting some context, let's start again in Matthew 4. Uh, This time we'll start in verse 12, and at a point we'll jump forward into Matthew 5. Matthew 4, verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, this is from Isaiah 9, the land, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Um, that's a richer quotation when you put it in the context of Isaiah 9. The first half of Isaiah gives heavy emphasis to how God, in His wisdom and His plan, um, had chosen to judge His people by bringing them under the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians invaded the land of Israel from the north. The northernmost regions of uh, the city of Israel were these um, tribes right here, Zebulun and Naphtali. They were situated along the Sea of Galilee and north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, They were, in God's own plan of judgment, they were the first of the people of God to fall under, uh, if you will, the tidal wave of this judgment that came from the Assyrians. Um, And even as God is planning this, and even as He is predicting what He's going to do to His people because of their covenant unfaithfulness, He gives them this whisper of hope that just as you are the first to go into the darkness of my judgment, you'll be the first to see the light of dawn in the coming of the Messiah. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What is this light? It is, of course, Jesus, the Son of God, um, who is known for preaching this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of his preaching had to do with repentance. And all of it had to do with the glories of the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, In particular, what did that sound like? Well, that's when you jump ahead to Matthew 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 7 was last week's lesson. Now this week's lesson, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, Last week we gave attention to what Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Um, It is a mark of the grace of God at work in a person's life when he can look at someone who's been made miserable by sin, who's been made miserable by her own sin, made miserable by his own sin, 
uh, and not be moved to anger or all of the sorts of things that come with a sense of self-righteousness, but instead be moved to pity. Um, that's what Jesus is talking about, having pity on those in a miserable condition because of the presence of sin all around them and the sin that's even in their own lives. But with that comes a temptation to another kind of sin. Um, I'll get at this kind of in a backward way. I will appeal to your memory of high school English. What could be better than high school English, right, Becky? It is a peak experience for all those who take it. Usually when students are in the 12th grade, they study Alexander Pope, at least for a day or two. And Alexander Pope is... Um, Oh, he wrote a bunch of poetry in the 1700s. Um, and his poetry is, is so uh, refined, ironed out, smooth, and shiny, um, that a number of the things that he has said has made its way into our own language, into our own idiom, even, even today. Uh, Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I remember one time being in a chapel service, and someone said, it's like Dr. Bob Sr. used to say, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And I chuckled to myself and I thought, well, I, I'm sure he said that, but someone else said it before. Uh, it was Alexander Pope. Um, also, in his essay on man, there's this famous line. Do you remember this from high school? Vice is a monster of so frightful mean, mean. Oh, here we go. I'll never get this Sunday school lesson started. Uh, it's not M-E-A-N, it's M-I-E-N, mean. And it, it means appearance or manner. You might say, well, why didn't you just say appearance? Because that wouldn't rhyme with the next line. All right. He says, vice is a monster of so frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then... Ah, I see you do, you do remember that English teacher, yeah. We first endure, then pity, then embrace... Pity is the language of mercy, right? We talked about that last week. And when you get confronted with people who, because of vice, are in a miserable situation, a godly response is to have pity on such a person. But if we don't handle that pity in a wise way, what ends up happening is that pity moves us to break down in our own hearts the walls that we should have erected in solid against sin and all of its effects. Uh, we should sympathize with the misery of the sinner, but not in such a way that we warm up to the sin itself. Um, and so it is not at all by accident that Jesus chooses to say right after, blessed are the merciful, or right on the heels of that to say, and blessed are the pure in heart. Um, let there be pity in your heart for the sinner. Love the sinner. Show him mercy, but don't join him in his sin. Do not join him in his sin. Blessed are the pure in heart. Um, purity, or its synonym, holiness, that was an idea, that was a theme very much emphasized in first century Judaism. You couldn't be part of first century Judaism without, being, without having a concern for holiness, a concern for purity, just shouted at you in the customs and the rituals of the day uh, over and over again. Jesus... Uh, participated in those customs and in those rituals. Um, and they have their roots deep in the Old Testament. They have their roots back in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
God uh, told Moses in the book of Exodus, you need to erect a tabernacle so that I might dwell with my people. Um, and then when the tabernacle was erected and when it was on the first day fully functioning, God's glory cloud descended on the tabernacle and so filled it with such thickness that the priests and the Levites have, had to stop their ministering. Um, clearly, God has chosen by the end of the book of Exodus to dwell with his people and that naturally leads to this question, now what? What do we do as a people that has God dwelling in its midst? Well, that's where the book of Leviticus comes in. You've got all of these different passages that give detailed instructions on what is required of a nation of people if a holy God is to live in their midst. There are certain sacrifices that uh, are to be observed. There are certain ways of offering offerings to God that are... Um, According to his pleasure, there are certain other ways of offering offerings that are not according to his pleasure. All of these rules about how to be clean and what it looks like to be unclean and rituals to go through in order to become clean after you've become uh, unclean. All of these kinds of foods that you can eat and certain other kinds of foods that you are not allowed to eat. All of that was meant by God to teach the people of Israel lessons about God, his nature, and about them and their nature. Um, there was no real essence in those instructions all by themselves. Um, they pointed to something else. They were symbols of a deeper meaning. And it was that deeper meaning, uh, meaning for the heart, that was missed by the people of God over and over again. <laughs> uh, you see this in many passages in the Old Testament. I think, I think preeminently, primarily of Psalm no, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs 7, Solomon talks about a foolish young man who is seduced by an adulteress and her, um, her husband is gone on a long trip and he catches her eye, so she approaches him. One of the things that she says is, I have offered my sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. The word sacrifices is the word in Hebrew for peace offerings. Peace offerings are described in Leviticus chapter 7 as uh, voluntary offerings that were often given at the end of a period of a, a vow. Um, and here you have her basically saying, hey, I just came from church. I'm all paid up with God. So I'm good for at least a week. So let's have some fun together. That's a stark example of pursuing purity of a sort, but deep down there is great defilement going on. But you see it in other places as well. Um, Jesus deals with this in several different places. In Matthew 15, um, the Pharisees are watching him, and he, he's on the go with his disciples, as he always was, and as he's on the go, they together are eating. Um, and because they're on the go, they don't engage in the ceremonial washing of hands, that the Pharisees were accustomed to. And it, was, it drove them up the wall, you know. And they confront him and they say, why do you not keep the traditions of our fathers? You have not, you know, washed your hands by the, the traditions that we all have received of our fathers. By the way, what they're referring to is something that was developed by the religious leaders subsequent to the book of Leviticus. There's nothing in the book of Leviticus about the particular kind of washing that they're referring to. But Jesus takes that as an opportunity to teach them about cleanness 
and about what the instructions in Leviticus about cleanness and uncleanness were really all about. Uh, and he says that the point of these laws was not um, that some foods are inherently evil. They all come from God. The point is not that uh, at certain times of the day, um, there is an absolute eternal truth here that you have to wash yourself with water. Um, that is not the point. The point is the heart. The point is what's deep down. Um, the point is not what goes into your body. It's what comes out of your body. It's what comes out of your mouth because it is the heart that God looks to, that God is most interested in. So Matthew 15, I think this is verse 19, he says, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile anyone. It is cleanness of heart that God looks for and has always looked for. Um, at this point, I, sh I should make this comment that we often use the word heart as a metaphor for the emotions. Um, but throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, the word heart is a metaphor for the entire inner person. So when Jesus is talking about being pure in heart, when he's talking about cleanness of heart, he's not talking about being clean in our emotions, simply, he is that. But he's talking about being clean in our aspirations for our life and what our dreams are for our lives. He's talking about being clean and pure also in our thoughts and in our thought life. Being clean of all of the things that he mentions right here, having a heart that is not characterized by lying, not characterized by slander, not characterized by immorality, murder, and hatred. That's really what this is all about. Pure. What I just said focuses on heart, but pure. Um, when we use the word pure, we, we, we tend to think of it as referring to the absence of something. Uh, purity is the absence of defilement. And certainly that is in view here, uh, the absence of vice. But when you take what Jesus is saying and you put it in the context of his teaching, it's also about the presence of something, not just the absence of vice. Um, you pick up on that all, when, when you link what Jesus is saying here back to the Old Testament. Uh, this is something we've mentioned several times, that Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is not a brand new moral teaching or ethical teaching never known to the people of God. He is echoing uh, what had been taught all the way through the Old Testament and, and giving it to the people of God with greater clarity than it had been known before. Uh, that's the reason that the first two Beatitudes are really just elongations of that passage at the beginning of Isaiah 61. Well, there's another passage I think that Jesus is putting his finger on here when we get to this Beatitude, and that's uh, Psalm 24. Um, in fact, it's so significant to what he's doing here in this beatitude that we ought to look at it. Psalm 24. Psalm of David. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? 
and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Here you hear an echo of um, verse 8 of Matthew 5. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the Lord, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, and then the rest of that stanza down through the end of verse 6 is the psalmist David uh, saying in different ways what it looks like to be a person who has a clean heart, who has a pure heart. He does not lift up his soul to what is false. Uh, that phrase, what is false, could very literally be translated, um, well, the whole thing, he who does not lift up his soul um, to the worthless thing. That's very literally what it says. Um, and that phrase, the worthless thing, occurs in different passages in the Old Testament to refer to an idol, because idols are worthless things. Just a carved block of stone, just a carved block of wood. Um, and I think that he is referring here ultimately to the idea of idolatry. The NIV recognizes that as well, and so it actually translates this verse, um, he who does not lift up his soul to an idol. Um, if that is the right understanding of that verse, then what you have in this verse is a reference back to the first of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. seems that here in this verse, David is kind of gesturing out to the first of the Ten Commandments. Who is the person who is allowed to ascend the hill of the Lord? The person who takes very seriously, right to the center of his being, that command you must have no other gods before me, which is another way of saying total devotion. Um, it's not that your heart is 50% for God and then 50% for yourself, <laughs> or 80% for God and 20% for Baal. Uh, your heart is 100% for God. And that's how the stanza ends. The stanza ends by saying, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The purity of heart that Jesus is talking about here is not simply a heart where vice is absent. It's a heart that is dominated by total devotion to the Lord. Um, vice is absent because devotion to the Lord, undivided devotion to the Lord, has driven out the vice. Uh, vice is absent not just because it has been scrubbed out. Vice is absent because it's been driven out by a heart that is, that is undivided. James, in chapter 4, which means it's coming, folks. Sooner or later, it's coming. Uh, James, chapter 4, and verse 8, he picks up on uh, this psalm, and in so doing, picks up on this part of the Beatitudes, where he says, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Um, there, again, is a reference. It's stated in the negative, but a reference to what we're talking about Right here, having a pure heart is not just having a heart that is free from vice. It's a heart that has vice crowded out of it by a single-minded devotion to the Lord. The opposite of that is an impure heart. Another way to say that is a heart that is double-minded. Now that leads to some probing questions. Uh, D. A. Carson wrote a very good study on the Sermon on the Mount. And at one point in that study, when it comes to this particular verse, verse 8 of Matthew 5, 
Uh, he gives some attention to some questions that we can ask ourselves about purity of heart and whether we are the kinds of people that Jesus is speaking of here. So he says, what do you think about when your mind slips into neutral? Oh, that's a great question. Are our thoughts going toward um, purity of heart? Or do our thoughts go toward the sorts of things that Jesus lists out when he speaks to the Pharisees about lying and slander, murder, hatred, and immorality? What do we think about when our minds slip into neutral? How much sympathy do we have for deception, no matter how skillful the deception may be in its expression? What and whom do we love? To what extent are our actions and words accurate reflections of what's really going on in our thoughts, what's really going on in our hearts? To what extent do your actions and your words constitute a cover-up for what is actually in the heart? Jesus calls for a life of undivided loyalty to God. And that is what is meant by purity of heart. And then Jesus gets into the reward, the blessing. The blessing is fellowship with God. Um, All the way through Scripture, the Bible bears witness to this blessing, that those who are pure, the reward that they receive for being pure is that they get to draw near to God. Um, That's that's the whole logic when it comes to Leviticus, together with the book of Exodus. Um, the, The whole reason that the tabernacle was constructed, God reveals to Moses, I think it's in chapter 25 of Exodus, build a tabernacle and build it according to this pattern, build it according to this plan, and put these rituals and customs in place according to this plan that I give you, that I may dwell among my people. These instructions about holiness, they have a purpose. And the purpose regarding all of these instructions about holiness is not so that we can say that we are holier than thou, but so that we might enjoy the blessing of having a holy God living in our midst. Um, That's the point of Psalm 24 as well. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, his blessing is he gets to ascend the mountain of the Lord. He gets to approach the temple of the holy God who rules the universe and has made all things. It's instructive, though, that the way that Jesus chooses to say it, he could have said, he could have said it very much like Psalm 24 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall ascend the mountain of the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall approach the temple of God. That's not what he says. He uses language that is stunning. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, That language is so stunning, there's a whole pile of commentators and commentaries out there that are working feverishly to figure out how to reinterpret it. Uh, This has to be metaphorical. No man can see God. No man can look upon the face of God. This is some kind of metaphor. Of course, you can't see God. uh, But it just means uh, drawing near to God in full and free fellowship. Well, it certainly does mean that. But we ought to let Jesus say what he has said. I think the promise here is worded as it is because it's meant to be taken literally. The pure in heart, with their eyes, will look upon the face of God. Uh, It is true that this is a promise that cannot be fulfilled now. It can't happen now. 
Moses already answered that for us, right? Uh, at one point, uh, Moses bows before God and he says, let me see you. Let me see your glory. And it's, it's clear from the context that he's motivated not by um, some, some, some kind of uh, unholy curiosity. Uh, he's motivated by a desire to see the person who has been so good to him to see the person who has shown him such remarkable... To see the one who has so marvelously forgiven him and showed him such great favor and shown such great favor to this people. He wants to see the one whose goodness he has experienced. And God says that's not possible. That's not possible. No man can see my face and live. Because of sin and because of no matter how pure in heart we attempt to be, we are still... (laughs) a people of unclean lips, and we dwell amongst other people of unclean lips as well. We simply do not have the capacity. Um, I had a nod here to English teachers just a few moments ago. Here's a nod to electricians and anyone who gets under a house with courage. Um, If you take an incandescent light bulb and connect it to a 220 circuit, it would be fantastic for a moment but it simply cannot bear the load. Um, And that's what we are because of our sin, because of our current condition. Uh, To stand in the presence of God and see the face of God cannot bear the load of such glory. Um, But someday that will be different. Someday we will be made, uh, remade, and we will be made pure And there will be no impurity in our hearts. There will be no thoughts in our minds. There will be no aspirations in our spirits unworthy of the glory of the holy presence of God. And we will live in a world that is worthy of the full effulgence of the glory of God's holy presence. And we will be capable of what we are currently not capable. I think of Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be written on their foreheads. They will see the face that has shown them love, but the love that they knew before, they knew indirectly through His Word, they knew indirectly through the experiences that God had surrounded them with, and the patience and the kindness of God, and also the righteousness and the justice of God. But in that day, all of those attributes we will see in the face of God. His love to us, His patience, His faithfulness, His kindness, His wisdom, and His power. And our being will be remade in such a way that it fits with all of that. It can bear the load of that. What a glorious day. What I also want to say, though, is that this blessing that is here in the second half of verse 8, it is fully known only in the next life, but there are hints of it that we're allowed to know even now. Not the fullness of it, but earlier hints of it. Um, Moses knew it. You know, let me see your glory. And... uh, God said, no, that, that is not possible. But in all of, God, all of Moses' experience of God, he was able to see God in a way, in drawing near, in fellowship. 
The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, By faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. God was still invisible to him. He was still hidden behind a veil of uh, appropriate secrecy for the glory of the holiness of God. But God still shared with him fellowship, fellowship that was sweet. In a sense, he was able to see him who is invisible. This is for all of us. God invites us to enjoy all of this. I, I quoted James 4, 8 a few moments ago. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. The first half of the verse, though, I didn't quote for you. I'll read it to you now. Draw near to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Um, all of these things seem so far away, and they seem impossible, but God, for all of his holiness, for all of his grandeur, for all of his uh, might and power, he still offers a relationship to all of those who want to draw near. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Uh, I remember I had a teacher once who said this. Yeah, if he said it once, he said it a thousand times. I am right now as close to God as I want to be because of that promise that's right there in James 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How does a person become pure in heart? That's a necessary question. Um, I want to start right here by saying this. No person can make himself pure in heart. <laughs> Uh, the more you understand your own heart, the more you understand that that very definitely is the case. I can't make myself pure in heart. Sometimes we think that we can, but that's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature. We, are, um, we find ourselves impure in the presence of God, not because we've made a series of bad decisions that have defiled our otherwise very pure and pristine character. We're, we're born into this world. Defiled. We're born into this world, as I said a couple weeks ago. We're born into this world in love with all of the wrong things. And I, I think again of First John chapter two, which summarizes very briefly what all of sinfulness is about, what all of worldliness is about. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And uh, you don't have to learn to appreciate the lust of the flesh. It's it's already loaded uh, on your hard disk. Um, well use the technology that's back there somewhere. Uh, it's already loaded on us. We, we, we come already with the lust of the flesh woven into our being, the lust of the eyes woven into our being, the pride of life woven into our being. And for that reason, we, we take uh, to lust, and we take to greed, and we take to jealousy, and we take to envy, and we take to hateful speech and gossip regarding other people. We take to that like a duck takes to water. <laughs> Um, and so how do you purge that out? God has to take pity on your soul and step in and bring cleanness to your heart that otherwise is entirely foreign to it. And that is what God loves to do, especially to those who approach him with the very first of the Beatitudes, being poor in spirit. One of the most precious passages in all of the Old Testament is Ezekiel 36. What a precious passage that is. Um, some of the key statements in Ezekiel 36 is this glorious promise that God gives to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. From all of your idols, I will cleanse you. 
I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. To be pure in heart, you have to receive a miracle. Miracle from God. The miracle that theologians call regeneration. God steps into your heart and do what you cannot do for yourself. He generates life in your heart that comes from His Holy Spirit. And through that cleanses you so that you are made clean from the defilements that we naturally are born into this world with. I just want to state something very clearly. Uh, If you are here and you know right now in the center of your being you are not... A Christ follower, that you are not a believer on Christ. You cannot make yourself a Christ follower. You cannot make yourself a believer on Christ, but God can do it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's what the Lord Himself asked as a rhetorical question to Abraham and Sarah. And what He said to them regarding His ability to bring redemption to this world is true also for the redemption that He can bring into your own life. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It is not too hard for the Lord to take away the heart of stone in the center of our being and replace it with a heart of flesh, a heart that beats after the heart of God, a heart that loves God the way that God meant for us originally to love Him. Those of us who have experienced regeneration, we understand that regeneration is what makes possible a pure heart But regeneration is not the only thing in the story. God regenerates, and then it is is our responsibility, independence, not independent, but in dependence on the grace of God, to purge our own hearts, to purify our own hearts and our own spirits regularly. Um, As the kinds of thoughts that Jesus describes as he's talking to the Pharisees and Uh, Matthew 15, as those thoughts arise in our hearts, thoughts of lust, thoughts of murder, thoughts of a competitive spirit, thoughts of envy, thoughts of jealousy, all of these sorts of things, as they pop up in our hearts, it is our responsibility to go to God with those thoughts, repent of them, and ask of Him fresh cleansing, um, that we might be clean indeed before Him. It is incumbent on us to turn away Uh, from these defilements of heart as often as they come up. It's incumbent on us also to remove out of our lives the practices that trigger these thoughts in our hearts. Oh my, I've gone to meddling now. Yeah. Uh, There are certain things that uh, Christians do, and it's different from one person to another because our personalities are different, our walk of faith is different, our background is different, but there are certain things we need to be willing to remove from our lives, certain kinds of entertainments that we need to remove from our lives because they excite in us things that are impure. They excite in us uh, the development of a heart that is not holy. Uh, Sometimes when I talk about these things, I I get looks on people's faces like, you don't understand grace, do you, Brian? (laughs) Don't get me started. Uh, It is precisely because of grace we need to talk this way. It is precisely because of grace that we need to give attention to these kinds of things. Grace isn't just forgiveness. Grace is the enabling that God gives to us to be different, to be transformed. And that means being willing to prune from our lives the things that we need to prune from our lives. It it, it means seeking out help from other people when we're 
uh, in difficulty and struggling and can't seem to get victory over sin. It means asking for other people to pray for us. It means seeking out accountability from another brother or a sister uh, so that the church of Jesus Christ can help us climb out of the pit that we may have dug, our, dug for ourselves. Uh, what I'm describing is a struggle and a life of struggle. And it is easy, right, when you face struggle day after day to be as pure as God has called us to be. Uh, it's very tempting when you face that struggle day after day to become weary and to become despondent and to feel like you're just slipping into despair. Please don't. I can understand feeling weary from constant struggle and seeking to be pure in heart. Um, but the only reason that we would fall in despair uh, would be because we think that the reward has faded from our view, that our struggle isn't accomplishing anything, and that the reward is so far over on the other side of the horizon that it's actually disappeared. Remind yourself of the reward. It's coming, and it's near. It's nearer than we realize, the reward that Jesus has promised. And as you remind yourself of the reward, it fires up your zeal. It gives you more strength where your strength has been lagging. I think in particular of First um, John chapter 3. We just mentioned a little bit from First John chapter 2, but think about First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, where uh, John says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself, even as He is pure. As you think on that, as you remind yourself of that, you gain strength that you once did not have. 